If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite you to open up to Acts chapter 2. And as we, uh, as we finish up this chapter today, just want to remind you what we've been looking at is a promise that Jesus gave to his people. That he would give them power to be who he is asking us to be. And that call in, in uh, Acts chapter 1 is a call to be his witness, his martus. Uh, Paul, I think, defines it in the book of Romans as a living sacrifice. A martus, the same root word for which we get the word a martyr. That the Holy Spirit would come and equip us. And the major thing that we need as a body of believers is to have that power to be who God's asking us to be. To stop trying to do it on our own and be frustrated with, uh, with an existence uh, where we do church or we have religion in our life, but we don't have the power in our life to be who and what God's calling us to be. So we want that power, but then as we, as we take a look at, at Acts chapter 2, we see a couple of things that the people were about. They were about unity. They were together. They had one passion. That one passion was to pursue Jesus Christ with all their heart. This was their passion. Think of the guys. Remember we talked about it. This is Mary and Martha and Mary of Magdalene and the 120 other disciples who had all been with Jesus for the last 40 days after the resurrection who had spent three years following Him and learning of Him. And when He went to heaven, they missed Him. They wanted Him They wanted to spend time with him. They wanted to talk to him. They wanted to be in his presence. So they had a passion to seek him with their whole heart. And they came together in prayer. An attitude of prayer. Looking and waiting for the promise of God to empower them to be who they need to be. And the the promise came. The promise came on the appointed time, the fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost. We talked about that last time, how they, they would wave two loaves on the, on the Feast of Pentecost, filled with leaven, which was against every other feast. The only feast in which leaven was utilized, representing Jew and Gentile being brought together in one body, the church. And it happens, it's birthed on that day. Well, this morning, as we take a look at this section of Scripture, we... We come to the message that Peter taught. He explained to them what was going on with the outpouring and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. Now he's going to focus on the message. And what we see in that message is the centrality of Christ. He's everything. He's everything for which it is all about. So if you join me, Acts chapter 2, we'll pick it up in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face. He is at my right hand, 
that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You have made me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Well, with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayer. And fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one another in the temple, the breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of your word. And for this most exciting day when the church is born. When it comes into being. Lord, I pray that you would give unto us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we desire to have that energy, that unity, that Love that we see on the pages as the church begins, Lord God. And we would not allow the cares of this world, the weeds, to choke out the fruitfulness of the seed. But we ask that you be glorified and magnified in this place. For we do desire to honor you in all we do. And we give you the thanks and the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we begin, we take a look at Peter's message. And as we look at Peter's message, it begins with this phrase in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst. One of the important things that we want to realize and recognize in the life of Christ is that though he was very God, did not consider it robbery or something to be grasped at, to hold on to the title of deity, he emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, and he came, and everything he did, he did through the power of God, not through his power. He set aside not his deity, for he was fully God, but he set aside the use of his own power, and he shows us, he defines for you and I, what can be accomplished in a man or a woman who is totally submitted and surrendered to the Father and to the work the Holy Spirit wants to accomplish in their life. Every work he did, he did through the power of the Holy Spirit as God poured out his spirit upon him. Everything. That's why Jesus would look at his disciples and say, These things that you've seen me do, and greater you shall do. What's he talking about? The, the idea of miracles, perhaps, the healings, for sure. But the point is that it occurs in a life that is surrendered to the Father the same way Jesus Christ was surrendered to his Father. A man attested to you. You knew, you saw. The scriptures, as we go through this message, we'll see over and over and over again, Peter is referring to the prophecies concerning the Messiah. That Jesus was a fulfillment of who the Christ was to be. The Christ, the miracles that the Christ would do. He did. The things that, that we know can, could be, couldn't be done any other way we see in his life. 1 Corinthians Chapter 15 lays out the same thing when Paul lays out for us the gospel. What is the gospel? But as I look at this and I think about the miracles and the workings that Jesus did in his earthly, in his earthly ministry, it always brings me back to Matthew 11. If you guys want to flip over there with me, you can. <coughs> Matthew chapter 11 is a, a section of scripture that is kind of dear to my heart let me tell you what he says it says now in verse 2 when john had heard in prison about the works of christ he sent two of his disciples and he said are you the coming one or do we look for another when john saw the miracles that was going on john had spent his whole ministry Reaching out to the people and say, repent, the kingdom of God is what? Is at hand. He's here, his sandals that I'm not worthy to loose. The, the, the one who has been promised, the Messiah, the Mashiach, Nagid, he's here, he's present, I'm going to point him out to you. And in fact, he did. He said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And he was looking for the establishment of this kingdom that he preached the eminent kingdom that he had come to set up. But John was in prison. And they were getting ready to cut off his head. And I'm sure in that prison he's thinking now, the kingdom of God is at hand. Surely any day 
Jesus will establish his kingdom and he's going to get me out of this prison before they take off my head. I mean, after all, my whole life has been devoted to him. Holy and completely to follow him. I, I dressed in camel skin and I ate locusts for my food. I was utterly and totally given to his service and surely he's going to get me out of this place. And so as he's there and he's, he's plagued by these doubts, what's going on, Lord? He sends his disciples to Jesus. And his disciples come to him and they ask, are you the one? Are you really the Messiah? The one that, that John's been preaching about is going to establish his kingdom. And this is what Jesus responded. Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. In verse 5, Jesus is saying, look, the fulfillment of Scripture. All throughout Scripture, Old Testament Scripture, talked about the works that the Messiah would do. That the blind would see, that the deaf would hear. Do you realize, do you understand the enormity of a leper being cleansed? And in Leviticus... There were all these cleansing rituals that were to be done for a leper when he was cleansed. You know how many times they ever did it? Never. Scripturally, the lepers we see cleansed were either before the law and the giving of Leviticus, or they were Gentiles. Never. The priest had to go to preschool, studied how to do the rituals for the cleansing of a leper, and there never was a leper cleansed. But the Scriptures say... That when Messiah came, he would be able to do that work. I want you to think about what it was like for those priests there on the temple when ten lepers came to him at once and said, we've been cleansed. Don't you think alarms should be going off? Ding, ding, ding. Something's up. This is that section of study of scripture we've never used. And now all of a sudden I'm, I'm opening Leviticus 13 thinking, what am I supposed to do again? How do we... How do we do the cleansing? Jesus is saying to John, look at all that's done. But then in verse 6, listen to his heart. In verse 6 he says, And blessed is he who's not offended because of me. That was Jesus telling John, I'm not coming for you. You're going to stay in prison. Herod, he's going to take your head. Bible tells us that God's ways are higher than our ways. And what we think God ought to do is not always what God ought to do. So he says to John, blessed is he, oh how happy is the one who will not be offended because of me. Because I didn't do what you thought I should. Don't be offended. The miracles attested to who he was. He was Beyond a doubt, the Messiah. He proclaimed it from his own lips in a synagogue in Nazareth when he read Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And he said, today these words are fulfilled in your hearing, which is a messianic psalm or a messianic prophecy. So he says, here I am. I'm the Messiah. That's what he said. And they tried to throw him off a cliff. Attested by God in the things that God said Messiah would be. 
So the first thing we see in Acts chapter 2, the very first point that we hear Peter making in this first sermon ever taught, he said, listen, the scriptures told us the works of Messiah and Jesus Christ fulfilled them. Jesus of Nazareth. These things were done in your midst, he says. You know about them. Folks, don't lose sight. It's 50 days after the crucifixion. Man, it's, it's not been all that long. They still remember. Hasn't been two months yet. They remember that day. The three years of ministry that Jesus had, they knew about the works that were done. He says, man, you guys know full well what's going on. Then he says in verse 23, not only were his works appointed by God or, or spoken of in the word, but so was his death. Listen in verse 23. Him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God was always God's plan that Jesus would die on the cross. He was born to die on the cross according to his foreknowledge, according to his plan. This was his purpose. And so Peter wants him to know <clears throat> he gave himself. Nobody took him. Didn't Jesus say the same thing? No one takes my life. I give it. Think about from the cross. He could have hung on the cross all the way to today. Because he's God. He never had to die on the cross. What did he say from the cross? He said, Father, to your hands I commit my spirit. And he gave up his life. He gave it. Nobody took it. He gave it. This is the point. And he's saying, listen... This was the determined purpose of God. But you, these very people that are there in the midst, you have taken by lawless hands. We know the trial was illegal. Everything they did was illegal in, in the crucifixion of Christ. You have taken and you have crucified and you have put to death. But in, in verse 24, he gives his third point. And the third point is, everything is going to hinge on this concept of the resurrection. God attended for him to die on the cross. He was attested in all the miracles that he did. He fulfilled God's purpose in verse 24, whom God raised up. Having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. It was not possible. Listen, all our faith hinges on the resurrection of Christ. Everything. If you... Read any of the Pauline letters. If we, if we were to look at 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15 from 13 to 20. Listen to what Paul says. If there is no resurrection of the dead. Then Christ is not risen. <coughs> Excuse me. If Christ is not risen. Then our preaching is empty. And your faith is empty. And we are found false witnesses of God. Because we have testified that he raised up Christ. Whom he did not raise. If the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise and Christ has not risen. And if Christ has not risen your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Everything hinges on the resurrection. This purpose of God Jesus came and fulfilled. He did these miracles. He went to the cross and God raised him from the dead. And by the way if you students of the word. If you search the scriptures, what you'll discover is that the Father raised the Son, 
the Holy Spirit raised the Son, and Jesus raised himself. We see all three members of the Godhead involved in the resurrection. This is what he says, whom God raised up. Why? It's impossible that death could hold him. Why is it impossible that death could hold him? Because he's God. He can't. He can't be held by death. It was impossible. And then he says, listen, here's why it's impossible. He's going he's gonna to give us these three things. That The first concept being, God cannot be held by death. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it's not possible that he should be held by it. And then he's going to go to the Psalms. Psalm 16, listen, he says in verse, uh, in verse 25, For David says, Concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad, and my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, the abode of the dead. What's David saying? I'm not going to stay dead. There is a resurrection. And then in the very next verse, he says, Nor will you allow your Holy One. That phrase, Holy One, is always a phrase referencing the Messiah. It means the only pure and perfect sinless one. That's what he's talking about. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. It's interesting when we look at this psalm, because uh, exciting for a couple of reasons. One, Peter says, David's a prophet. And he's speaking prophecy in this psalm. Not only is he a prophet speaking prophecy, but when he says you will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption. The Hebrew mind said that corruption is established on the fourth day. So if he said you will not allow your Holy One to seek corruption, that means he will rise by the third. Isn't that interesting? Scripturally, David prophesied the Messiah, not only would he die, but he would rise by the third day. <coughs> you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. So we see, as we look at this scripture, is David talking about himself? He can't be. Why can't he be? The scripture tells us. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely, freely to you, the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried. You can still go to his tomb. David is still in the ground. So it is impossible that David was talking about himself. He was talking about the Lord. He was talking about Jesus. He was talking of the promise that God gave. Listen, as you're thinking about that, and as you kind of chew on it for a moment, just turn to the left a couple of books of Matthew chapter 22 and be reminded of something that Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 22, Jesus, as he's answering the Pharisees, beginning in verse 41, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? They said to him, Well, he's the son of David. So Jesus said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David calls him Lord or Master, how is he his son? 
And they didn't know how to answer him. Peter tells us in Acts chapter 2. Peter says, because he's speaking of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God in the flesh. He's speaking of the Messiah, the Mashiach Nagid. He's, he's saying, so he says, listen, the resurrection and the fact that the resurrection was prophesied is based on the idea that it was impossible for death to hold him. That David in Psalm 16 is not talking about himself. He's talking about the Lord. He's talking about God Almighty. He's talking about our Lord and Savior. But he also goes on to say, therefore, in verse 30, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ. That his soul would not be left in Hades, nor his flesh would see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of which we are all witnesses. The third evidence that he has of the resurrection, or the proof that it was prophesied in Scripture, that it's something that was part of God's plan, is that it's impossible for God to lie. And God said he would do it. And he did it. He didn't allow his soul to stay in Hades, in the abode of the dead, in the grave. He didn't allow him to see corruption. He raised him up. And then Peter says this, we are witnesses. We saw him. We saw him. Well, you consider that witness of, <clears throat> of Peter. If, if you want to join me, turn in your Bibles to 1 John. In 1 John, John the... The beloved had a similar thing that he spoke when people would, when he would witness, when he would share about what God had done in his life. Listen to what he says in 1 John 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. He, he's saying, which we have heard with our own ears. Which we have seen with our own eyes. Which we have looked upon. That means intently inspected. Remember when Jesus said to Thomas, Look, here are the nail prints in my hands, the hole in my side. Reach, touch, feel. Don't be unbelieving, but believe. This phrase that John uses here, which we have looked upon, means to closely inspect. We know this was Jesus Christ. And whom our hands have handled. We touched him. We held him. We saw him. We heard him. We're not telling you stories that somebody else told us. We are telling you, we saw Jesus. We walked with him for three years. We handled him. And after the resurrection, we intently inspected him. And we heard the words that he said. And we heard the promises that he gave. We touched him. We held him concerning the word of life. Which life was manifested that we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That which we saw, touched, felt. Man, this... this Jesus, God has raised up of which we are witnesses. 
We're the ones. We were there. We saw him. It's true. So as Peter begins giving the word, he first he talks about all the things that the word of God had promised concerning Messiah. That it had promised the miracles that Jesus fulfilled. That it spoke of his death, which was part of God's plan. That he was raised from the dead, which was also spoken of on the pages of Scripture. And then he says, and he was ascended. He was brought, taken to heaven, which was spoken of again by the Scripture. Look what he says in verse 33. Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God, and having <coughs> received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured this, he poured out this, which you now see in here. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. He's speaking of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ and his ascension. Brought to heaven, he is now seated at the right hand of the Father and waiting for that time when God will send him back for the return of the king. This is what scriptures are talking about. The, the, the prophesy or the prophecy of the ascension spoken of by David again in the Psalms. Who was David talking about? He was talking about the Christ, the Son of the living God. Therefore, in verse 36, he says, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Wow. He's made him both master and Messiah. He is the one. So he talks about what the scripture said, how the scripture pointed to Christ, how he fulfilled those scriptures, how he died, was buried, rose again on the third day and ascended to the Father. He says, this Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. He's the one. He's the promised fulfillment. And the scripture tells us the only way that the church moves forward is on the centrality of that message. It's on him. Jesus is the main thing. He's our main focus. He's our main passion. He is our provider of the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. He's all those things that we need. It's all about him it's not about me it's all about him and so peter as he delivers this message the church is born but to, listen the church is born <coughs> the church is born because of her response to the message because of her response look what happens in the in the lives of these who are listening these who have heard. The first thing we see in verse 37 is they're convicted of their sin. Listen. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Man, they were pierced. They were convicted of what? Sin. They were convicted in the part that they played in the crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ. Well, don't lose sight of the fact that that crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus Christ was part of God's plan. So who put him on the cross? Who put him up? The Jews or the Romans? 
In Isaiah 53, it says that he was, he was killed for my transgression. That he was beaten for my sin. That I put him on the cross. That it was for me that he died. And so the message, the conviction of sin came upon the people because they saw their guilt in relationship to the price that Christ paid. They were convicted of their sin. And what do they say? Men and brothers, what do we do now? What do we do? We're guilty. We're, we're a part or a party to the crucifixion of the Messiah. What do we do? The first step in the birth of the church, the first step in our relationship with Christ, begins with that same point, that I am convicted of sin. If I believe I'm a good person and I'll just add Jesus to my life, I will question that salvation. Because you have to know your need of a Savior. I'm guilty. I'm a sinner saved by grace. By a gift I didn't deserve. And I cling to that centrality of Christ in my life. I am convicted of sin. And that's the first step. I am guilty. <coughs> my sin put Jesus on the cross. And so when they asked the question, look at Peter's answer. And Peter said to them, repent. First step. Repent. Second step. Be baptized. First step, repent. What's that mean? Change your mind and direction. I have to change my mind. That means I have to say, I agree, I'm a sinner. I agree, I'm guilty. I agree, this is sin. My mind is changed. Then my direction is changed. I stop heading that way and I turn toward Christ. Not that I'm already perfected or that I've already attained, but what? Forgetting those things which lie behind, I press on toward the upward call of Jesus Christ. I'm headed toward Him. That's repentance. That's repentance that I plant my feet and I turn and change my direction. And then He says, let every one of you be baptized. I find that interesting. By the way, that's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, if you can find the time, if it doesn't mess up your life too much, and you can decide, you know, maybe you should be baptized, that'd be cool, but... No, he says, repent and be baptized. The next phrase, for the remission of sin, is attributed to the word repent. In the Greek, it means your repentance occurs because of the remission of sin. The faith that you placed in Jesus Christ, you turned from that which was in the world, pulling or holding us back to Christ, and you have the remission of sin. And because of that, be baptized. Now I was I was kind of mulling over it and chewing on it and and <coughs> and wanting to to really have that solid understanding of it. Because think about it. Matthew 28, what did Jesus say? In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What's the next phrase? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. That's our, 
commissioned, not to most people, to us all. Repent, he says, and be baptized. 1 Peter chapter 3 tells us that baptism becomes an antitype. And he gives us the example of the flood. And the purpose of baptism is an opportunity to, by faith, stand up before anyone else and proclaim that just as I go into the water, I have died. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20 That I have died. The water symbolizes death and burial. And being raised from the water speaks of the resurrection. It's an opportunity to proclaim faith that I believe that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And so I want to be identified with Him in baptism. So I died with Him. I was buried with Him. And I rose with Him. And now I am a new creation created in Christ Jesus. Repent, He said, and and be baptized. Make that proclamation. That proclamation of your faith. What God has accomplished. To say. To, to have that touch point that says. Man this is my acknowledgement. That God did all this for me. It's my acknowledgement that God died for me. Was buried and rose again. It's my acknowledgement. That's what baptism is. So he said repent. Be baptized. The scripture tells us in verse <clears throat> in verse uh, 38, he also said, And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These 3,000 that were baptized, no record that they spoke in tongues like the 120 did prior. But they were filled with the gift of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because when God promises something, He delivers. We don't know all their stories and we don't know everything that happened to them and we don't know where they went from here. But what I do know and we're going to see in a moment is they were filled with the love of God that can only come from the Holy Spirit according to Paul in Romans chapter 5. They were filled with the love of God because of the way this church acts is amazing. They were filled. They were given the gift of the Holy Spirit. They repented, were baptized, and received the Spirit. They've entered into salvation. We see it in the very next verse. He says in verse 39, For the promise, the promise, what promise? The promise that Jesus gave to be empowered, to be His witnesses, is to you and your children, and to, his, and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, He testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved. From this perverse generation. So he continued to encourage them and exhort them. And what occurs in in the very next verse. Then those who gladly received his word. Were baptized. And that day. 3,000 souls were added. That is. More than 10 times. Who is here this morning. A lot of people, when they look at the book of Acts and they say, you know, in the original church, it was all in homes. That's not entirely true, by the way. It's not entirely true. They met in the temple. And before we get to chapter 5, you're going to see in somewhere in the neighborhood of 25,000 people a part of this church in Jerusalem. 
3,000 now, 5,000 coming. God poured out his spirit in an amazing way. And they received the word and they were saved. And they marked that salvation. They marked that by the going through the obedience of baptism, coming before God and being <coughs> baptized and proclaiming, this is what God has done for me. And then they were counted as believers. And I think this is so exciting to see the church birth. But then, then in verse 42, it talks about their commitment, their passion. And this, for me, when I study the book of Acts, and, and I've often wondered, and maybe you've thought the same thing in your mind. You know, we look at the book of Acts and we see the incredible things that happen. And we say, wow, you know, how come that's not what the church is like today? Maybe it's, uh, you know, the, we're not entrusting ourselves or surrendering ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit. And surely I, I think that's part of it. But I think a whole lot more has to do with verse 42. It has to do with the level of commitment that they had. What they were committed to. What they did with this newfound life in Christ that they had. What did they do? What did they allow God to accomplish in their life? It says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine <coughs> and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayer. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means they were studying the Word of God. They took every opportunity they could get to study the Word of God. We know that because we're going to read the next several chapters. And in the next several chapters, you're going to see them constantly and continually teaching in the temple grounds. They're going to be teaching in the temple grounds so often that they're going to take them and beat them. And after they've been beaten, they're going to be glorifying the Lord for the fact that they were accounted worthy to suffer. And they're going to walk out of the very room that they beat them and start preaching again. Start teaching. Start bringing out the Word of God. What Word were they teaching? The New Testament, they're writing it. What Word are they teaching? They're opening up the Old Testament Scriptures and they're saying, look at the fulfillment of Messiah, what Jesus Christ has done. Here's what He's done in our life. Look and see the truth of what God's Word teaches. Daily. Daily. If we want to give a report card to what's going on in our life, then the first question we ask myself, because the Bible, by the way, is a mirror, not a flashlight. Do I continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? I hear people say occasionally, I can't stand doctrine. That's a scary thing to say. Doctrine is... The truth of who Christ is. Amen. It's hard to put those phrases together. The word. They continued steadfastly in the word. They were committed to doctrine. The word of God. And then the next thing that they say. And fellowship. And fellowship. And, and koinonia. And the gathering together. The writer of Hebrews would say. Do not forsake the assembling together. As some do. Especially in these last days. To gather together. Why did they want to come together? Why did they want to come together? Because they loved each other. They loved each other. 
That's how I know they had the power of the Holy Spirit working through their life because they loved each other. They're not perfect. They have people. Anytime you put 3,000 people together, somebody's not going to get along. It's only going to take four chapters for them to have their first fight. It doesn't take very long. But it doesn't change the fact that they loved each other. They wanted to gather together. The Bible tells us that not only did they gather together at the temple, corporately, but they also gathered together how? House to house. That's why in the church today we have services and opportunity to study the word, to be, to be instructed in what God's word says corporately, and we have it house to house. We have ladies' Bible studies, men's Bible studies, groups that get together and from far away as Twin, through Filer, here in Buell, they get together and study. Why? Because that's what the Word of God says, that they continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine, studying the Word. They met together corporately, and they met together in house to house. How committed are we? How committed am I to love God's people and to gather together? Or when that preacher finally gets done talking, am I the first guy out the door? Because if I don't hurry up and get over to Garibaldi's, then I'm going to have to wait for a table, and you know how that goes. And... Or am I committed to love God's people? Am I committed to look for an opportunity to pour into somebody's life who's hurting, who needs the encouragement? <laughs> they loved each other. They loved each other. They shared in an activity with one another, and they shared what they had with one another. Isn't that what the scripture says? And they also shared in the breaking of bread. That's the Lord's Supper. It also talks about worship. The breaking of bread was the attitude of worship. They would have their love feast where they would gather together and celebrate not only the Lord's Supper, the fact that Jesus gave himself for them, but they would also celebrate in a love feast together so that they could have that fellowship one with another. It speaks to the attitude of worship. They had a commitment to study the word. They had a commitment to love and care for one another. They had a commitment to worship. And they had a commitment to prayer. They prayed together. They wanted to seek the Lord. They wanted to go before his face. We're going to see prayer throughout the book of Acts. Everywhere we turn, we're going to see God's people praying. When Peter gets arrested and thrown into prison, they think they're going to kill him. What do they do? They prayed. They prayed. God's people praying together, committed to prayer. God's people committed to studying the word. God's people committed to worship. God's people committed to love one another. And look what scripture says as we continue on. It's a... They gave, they sold their possessions and divided them amongst anyone who had a need. Man, that's love. <laughs> that's love. It wasn't selfishness. It was love. Not communism where someone says, hey, give up all you got for me. It was of their own free will. Giving away their own stuff to share with somebody else. It was the love of God flowing through a church, meeting the needs of one another. And I'm hopeful that that's something that will be a mark that is a mark of Calvary Chapel Buell, that we are a giving church, a loving church, wanting to help meet one another's needs, meet those areas that are in our life, those things that are going on, that we can meet that. We see that's something that they were about. And But look what it says in verse 46, and continuing daily. Oops. This was not just on a Sunday. 
continuing daily with one another in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Not only did they meet corporately, they met house to house. They, this was their life. This is who they are now. It was messy. It infected everything. They couldn't separate their life from secular and sacred. It was everything was now about Christ. The job I work is about Christ. The things I do is about Christ. The stuff I do is about Christ. This was the attitude of the church. Listen, the the empowerment that we need is still the same empowerment. We need the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. But this is what the church was doing. This is how the church is to be committed. I catch myself thinking, I spend too much time church stuff. How's that even possible? How's that even possible? I committed daily. I I never know. uh, Sitting here, who's going to walk through the door in the next minute? You'd be surprised. Come hang out sometime. You never know who you're going to meet. Who's going to come? What their needs are going to be? They continue daily. But not just here, with each other, in their homes. It's something they took home. It's something they took to their neighbors. It's something they took to their neighborhood. It's something they took wherever they went. When they went to work, it's who they were. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm doing this job, and I'm doing this job well. But I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. First, that's who I am. That's what defines me. A disciple. I'm a disciple. And you can't separate There's not a part of my life that's world and then my relationship with Christ. It's all Him. And look at verse 47, just as we close out. They were praising God and they had favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. They had an attitude, a desire to reach out. Evangelism. How did they do their evangelism? I want you guys to think about this because it's mind-boggling. How did they do their evangelism? I love Greg Laurie and I love the, the Harvest Crusades and I'm stoked about what, what occurred here as a result of Harvest America. and All those things are good. And all those things serve their, their, have, their, have their place. But let me tell you something. If we had a crusade every week, a humongous crusade, we're not going to get any closer to having the world reach for Jesus Christ. It's not going to happen. We'll get further behind then we will get ahead. But if we were to wipe out every Christian today, none. And one person believed and they committed to reach one other person a year for Christ. In 35 years, the entire population will be saved. If every year... They led one person. Every believer led one person. That's if we wiped out all believers and started over. What if we start with what we have? What if all of us said, you know, it's not some big, humongous job. i got to lead 100 people a week to the Lord. But surely we can say, I, there's, I can find one person that I can lead to Christ. One person that I can, can point the way to Jesus Christ a year And the whole world changes. And that church believed it and they lived it. And they did it. And their church is not all about 
church growing because you know what God's going to do when their church gets really big? He's going to whack them with Paul. Well, Saul then. And when he hits them with Saul, they're going to do, go everywhere. Because he said, part of the, the commission was not stay here forever. It was go. So the Lord's going to send the church. Well, that's the point, man. We need to, we need to be affecting our world. Listen, we need a power of the Holy Spirit. We need prayer. We need commitment to God's Word. We need to be gathered together. We need to be focused. And we need to realize our lives are not divided by secular and sacred. We're either all Christ or we're not His at all. And if we're all Christ, then let's be about our Father's business. Let's be who God's calling us to be. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we do thank you for the truth of your word, God, and for what your word accomplished with people just like me. There's not something special about the first 3,000 who gave their life to Christ. There's not some amazing thing that occurred that's different than what has occurred in my life. It's just like me. But we see that they were committed. And you're calling us to a commitment, Lord, a commitment to be who we say we are. To do what you're calling us to do. That we are to be disciples. And this is what disciples do. They are disciples all the time. Not just Sunday. Not just Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. But every day. Every moment. Every opportunity. They are disciples no matter where they go no matter what their job is, no matter what the day brings, they are always disciples. Not perfect. Not perfect. But committed. God, as we come before you this morning, it's our desire to be committed to you. To what you want to do in our life, my life individually, what you want to do in our fellowship what you want to do in our communities. And Lord, I thank you that here as we gather together, we have multiple communities that are all in need of the touch of your Holy Spirit from Twin Falls to Castleford and everywhere in between. That you want us to be about our Father's business. And our Father's business is making disciples. And to be equipped to make disciples, we've got to be committed to your word. We've got to know what your word says. God, may we be committed, not just corporately as we gather together here on Sundays and Wednesdays and Sunday nights, God, but that we would be committed to, to gather at other opportunities to study your word. That we would be committed to open your word every single day and to allow your word to speak life in our life. Where else would we go for the answers but to you? That we would be committed to love each other and look for opportunities of fellowship. Look for opportunities to continually come together with God's people and be encouraged. To come together with God's people and use it as an opportunity not to receive but to give. To love others. That we would look for those opportunities in worship, Lord God, to come before you and to 
proclaim your mighty, mighty name to anyone who will hear. That we would look for opportunities to gather together corporately in prayer. To be a part of the prayer ministries that are going on. So many people within our, our fellowship <coughs> and outside that are in need of prayer. A world of getting ready to, to go deeper into the brink that is in need of prayer. An election that is in need of prayer. A nation that is in need of prayer and a people who are committed to do it. People who are committed to evangelize. Daily looking for the opportunity. This is the call of Acts chapter 2 that you give us, Lord. The call to commitment. So as we come before you, Lord, we pray that in every one of our hearts will be that desire to say, I am committed. So fill me with your Holy Spirit that I might perform, that I might be who you're asking me to be. Give me the best gifts that are necessary in the role to bring people to know you. Be glorified and magnified in my life and in this place. For we desire to make you known. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out in a word of worship. And we want to invite you to worship with us. And we look forward to a time of fellowship out in the foyer. But as you're preparing to leave and go on into the world, I invite you. If you feel like the Lord is calling you to that deeper commitment. And you, or you have a prayer request or something you'd like to pray about. That you would find prayer counselors around the room who would be willing to pray with you guys. God bless you. Go in peace.